Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place and we ask you to speak to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that you would bring your word to life. Lord, we don't gather here this morning to practice a dead religion or a dead faith or a God that is unhearing, unfeeling, uncaring. But instead, we come to worship a God that is deeply involved and cares for who we are and what we are becoming. I pray as we continue to sit with this church in Galatia and, and, and learn from this letter, I pray, Spirit, that you would encourage, you would transform, you would convict, you would challenge, whatever it would be, God. I pray that you would just release your presence in our lives, that we may become fully alive to what you have for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us on this Father's Day, hot, hot Father's Day. Like, oh my goodness, I drove down here, and it was, um, if you could be in shade today, um, I think that'd probably be a good thing, because it is going to be a hot one. Well, this morning, we are going to continue on uh, the book of Galatians. We've been walking through it for the last several weeks to kind of understand it a little bit. Let's recap what we talked about last week, just so that we're on the same page. In the book of Galatians, in the center of this book is this passage of Scripture, And what is so phenomenal about this passage is that what Paul does is he removes all our classifications. So the opening video for the series is kind of funny, right? Not a male, not a female, you know, not a Jew, not a Gentile. I did that intentionally, not to be provocative, but to really take what Paul is saying here. He is removing all the labels that society would put on us and say, listen, forget that. Forget male or female, forget Jew or Gentile, forget black or white, forget rich or poor. Forget old or young, you're Jesus. It's Jesus, right? This is the gospel. This is what Paul is saying to us. And we kind of look at this idea that, uh, about Jesus, right? So Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Now, Paul is asking people, who, do this, who, who are you, right? What is it seen in our lives that we have? We looked at this diagram, right? You know that I, um, I think visually, that's just kind of how my brain works. So I have to always diagram. I have to always kind of put it on page there, right? We've been talking about this idea about the law, right? And what Paul said in chapter three was, is that the law can be this hard outer shell that can really hide a heart of darkness, right? So what Paul is saying is you can behave and act in all these ways. You can follow all these rules, but you're still distant from God, right? And so what Paul is saying, what, what he's trying to say is the gospel is, is the spirit of God, what we just sang about this morning, coming inside of us and transforming us from the internal to the external. And that the law no longer applies in the sense of like these 613 rules that the Jewish people follow, but instead it's a guideline. It's a, it's a marker. It's, it's boundaries on which healthy Christ-like behavior looks like. And that's what we walk, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? None of us will fulfill the law. None of us will be perfect people. But the Holy Spirit is meant to transform and change. And we're going to look a little bit more about that in the future. And, and actually in a, in a few minutes. We uh, wrapped up last week. We're looking at the book of Revelations. Right? Revelations is a phenomenal book. And it's one of the books of the Bible people always say to me, are you ever going to teach on it? And the answer is, I have no idea. I'm terrified of this book. Just because there's so much in it that we don't understand. And there might be a day that I actually have the courage to do so. But one of the things that Revelation does do is it gives us a glimpse of the end of all time, the end of all things. And the reason why this is so important is because it kind of says to us, listen, what is happening currently is not going to be the way it always is. 
the depravity, the suffering, the, the violence, the, the, uh, the rich taking advantage of the poor, these things will be done away with at some point in time. And Revelation chapter 7 paints this beautiful picture that, 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 that John, the writer of, uh, of Revelations, sees this vast host of people standing before God. People of different race, of different languages, of different cultures, and they all stand and worship the same God. And that is the heart of Galatians. That is the heart of what Paul is saying to us in the book of Galatians. That's what we talked about last week. This morning, we're going to kind of jump into the next chapter. But before we do so, I want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, what Galatians kind of brings up. So I've been having these great conversations with people about the book of Galatians. Galatians is a book that actually kind of straddles two worlds. Right? On the one hand, you have one leg that is firmly planted in the Old Testament. And Paul keeps dragging Old Testament references for us to kind of help us to understand it. But the other one is planted in a Gentile context. Remember, the first week we looked at the historical, archaeological um, significance of, of Galatia. Right? They, it was founded by ancient Celts. Right? And so it's a Gentile uh, colony. It's a Gentile place with not a lot of Jewish understanding. And so Paul is trying to help these Gentiles, which is us, try to understand the Old Testament and make sense of it. I came across this article by G. Shane Morris. Now, that was kind of funny, but also sad. He talks a little bit about where our culture is today. He brings up these examples of how our culture is kind of getting wrong. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal actually said this, that Moses brought water from Iraq. Now, I think what they meant to say was Iraq, but they actually, like, because no one there would have an understanding of that's what the biblical con- story said, they kind of messed it up. Um, NPR said this about Easter, uh, the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die and go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather rose into heaven. Now, again, for those of us who have some sense of biblical knowledge, we know This is absolutely ridiculous. And of course, the best one is uh, Chuck Todd of NBC. I'm a bit hokey when it comes to Good Friday. I don't mean to to disrespect uh, to the religious aspect of the day, but I'm going to. Uh, But I love the idea of reminding folks that any day could be good. All it takes is a little selflessness on our own part works every time. No, it doesn't, Chuck. It doesn't even come close to that. So what we are seeing is our culture that we live in today, Western culture, Canadian culture, Waterloo culture, wherever you're from, we're post-Christian. One of the reasons I teach the way I do it, yes, there is a reason for it, because I always think that there are three groups of people, every time I speak at a camp or a conference or a retreat, there are three groups of people that are present in the group that I'm speaking to. The first group is those who are skeptical slash curious or both. And those are people who have heard about the Bible or Jesus, but don't quite know what Christianity is about. And so they're on the fringe and they're looking in. And so I'm trying to help them to understand uh, what the Bible or what, what God says. The second group of people are the overchurched, the disinterested, those who have grown up in the church are now bored by church, bored by God, and think they know. And so I hope that every time that I teach, I say I hope, that I'm able to kind of bring some insight, something to kind of say, you know what, perhaps you can take a look at this passage again, maybe get something new from it. And the third group of people that I think are, um, that are present whenever I speak are those who are, have no Bible context whatsoever. Like none, right? Like this, this is a group of people that are, according to studies and statistics, are growing. Right? That, that we are no longer living in a context of a, of, of a culture where you could say things that people go, oh, yeah, yeah. He's making reference to the Bible, or he's making reference to the story. Instead, we are now living in a time where we have to kind of over-explain so that the context is made clear to what's going on. Um, he goes on in the article uh, to say this. 
Writing in the Washington Post, Christine Emba admits that many Americans, particularly those in the news media, are more likely to recognize a Harry Potter reference than a biblical one. This is a problem because, as a reference point, the Bible is a skeleton key that unlocks hundreds of years of culture from Shakespeare to kind Wilney. Uh, Emma hints at this when she points out that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail is virtually unintelligible without, work, without a working knowledge of the, of the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, here's what she's saying. It's that we've now come so far the other direction that unless you understand that Western culture is built upon a Judeo-Christian understanding of humanity, it's not going to make sense to you. Uh, back in January, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and, and it's a great day. I remember having a conversation with somebody who said to me that Martin Luther King Jr. was a civil rights leader. I said, no, he wasn't. Of course, they looked at me like, 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 how could anybody deny that? I said, no, 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 you actually missed the point. He was a pastor. And it was because of his faith and his understanding of the kingdom of heaven that he did what he did. It wasn't because of culture. It wasn't because of society. It was because he saw that there was a God who values people not based upon skin color, not based upon anything else, but based upon that they have value in the kingdom of heaven. And that is why he was a civil rights leader. The, the one came, right, the chicken and the egg, or however you want to look at it, came first. Is that Martin Luther King Jr. saw that there was a God who loved humanity. And that nobody in this world should be treated differently because of the color of their skin. That is a deeply spiritual concept. Not a civil concept. Spiritual concept. And so... I remember uh, talking to this person. I said, listen, you know that he was a pastor. No, he wasn't. I'm like, ah, ah, okay, he was a Baptist minister. Have you read his writings? Have you heard his sermons? You mean speeches? No, no, sermons, right? Because they are based upon biblical understanding. But we have now come so far in the other direction of our culture that this stuff almost seems like um, heresy to say that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't a civil rights leader, but he was a pastor. And what he did was because of what he's understood about the kingdom of God. He uh, wraps up by saying this in the article. The cost of not knowing the Bible goes deeper still. Past Shakespeare and Chaucer and the Magna Carta and the civil rights movement. Ignorance of Christianity undermines the deepest aspirations of the Western mind and our ability to know why we have these aspirations. One of the things that's kind of interesting, I'm I'm working on a series for the fall. Um, If you recall, I I did a series about a year ago called EBF, Evidence-Based Faith. It was an apologetic series. Well, I'm working on a part two to that. And one of the things I'm saying in this next series that uh, in the fall that we're going to be looking at is this idea of atheists. I love talking to atheists, and I don't mean that in a belittling way. I'm just curious, right? I'm just curious. I want to know what they believe and why they believe it, because I, 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 I like hearing people's viewpoints. Well, I had a conversation with an atheist a few months back, and uh, I asked him a question. I said to him, what kind of atheist are you? He kind of looked at me like, you're looking at me right now. And he said, like, what do you mean? Like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I said, no, 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 no. That's not true, actually. I said, I'm not here to convince you you're, you don't believe in God. What I am here to convince you is that you are a Western atheist, which is different than a Russian atheist, which is different than a Chinese atheist, which is different than a North Korean atheist. He's like, well, I'm like, so you tell me that, you know, you're an atheist and you, believe, you don't believe in God, but you believe in humanity and freedom and all these things. These are Judeo-Christian values that if you were an atheist that grew up in russia or in north korea or in china or other countries that perhaps would be atheistic you would have a completely different viewpoint of the world and and what the world would look like i said you're taking all the judeo-christian understandings of, of 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 civil rights of humanity of freedoms and rights and you're taking the god part which is the catalyst for this out 
And you're calling yourself enlightened in the sense of saying, well, I, I believe all these things. But what you believe is actually from the Bible. You don't want to acknowledge that, and I understand that. But it's actually from this context that that's what you believe. Because, again, look at what atheism looks like in different countries and different cultures around the world. They treat people completely different. They have a completely different understanding of human rights. They have a different understanding of, of, of women's rights and, and, and different things like that. So what we're seeing here is that whatever you say about Western culture, and please understand, I'm not here to say to you that it's so great, it's all fantastic. It is not. But what I am saying, it is based upon an understanding of the Bible. But if you stop understanding what the Bible says, that's when you start having these conversations of, of, of like, well, no, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. It's like, okay, we need to kind of go back to that. The reason I'm saying that to you, the reason I want to kind of open up with that is because Galatians is this book that's pretty meaty, right? It's not just simply this letter about be good and act good or have the Holy Spirit, but Paul is trying to help these Gentiles understand the Jewish context of their faith. But he's trying to help them understand it without the unpacking of all the religious, the Judaizers we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And so that's where he's going to continue in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, your electronic device, get chapter 4 out because we're going to walk through it. And it's broken up into three sections. Remember, we're having a high-level view of what Paul is talking about so that we are kind of moving through quickly uh, rather than kind of going verse by verse. So in Galatians chapter 4, the first uh, section, Paul makes reference to a concept. And I want to kind of unpack it for you. So verse 4 and 5 says this. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, just let me stop here for a second. If you were a Jewish person, this, this phrase doesn't mean anything to you. If you are a Gentile, a couple thousand years from the Roman Empire, this phrase means nothing to you. Paul is doing something very interesting here. He's trying to help this Gentile church understand what their relationship with God looks like. Let me explain to you what adoption to sonship means first. First of all, you need to understand that there was no process for adoption in the ancient Jewish culture. If a man died, his brother automatically became the head of his household. So there was no need for a legal adoption process. The word adoption during the time and context in which St. Paul spoke referred to the Roman concept of adoption. So... Just let me unpack that for a second. To a Jewish person, you don't get adopted. If the head of the household, the male of the household, remember, it's a patriarchal culture. Not here to defend that. I'm just telling you what it is in a Middle Eastern ancient culture. When the male dies, the next family member in line takes over that family to kind of give guardianship and help until the, the children are either married off or able to kind of assume leadership of the household. And so adoption does not mean anything to the Jewish person, but it means something to a Roman citizen because this phrase actually means something to them. So let me tell you what it means to a Roman. An adopted child received a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New rights and responsibilities were taken on. Also, in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was part of life, not something that began at death. Being adopted made someone an heir to their father, joint shares in all his possessions, and fully united to him. So remember I said to you that the Jewish culture didn't have adoption. Well, the Roman culture, in ancient Roman culture, if the male of the household, again, patriarchal culture, when the male died, if there was no heir, guess who gets the household and all the belongings? The government. So what had to happen was, is if you were a male and you, you were married, but you didn't have an heir or you didn't have a son or a daughter, 
you had to find an heir. So what would happen is, is you would take a slave, um, and again, Roman culture believed in slavery, but it wasn't slavery as understood today, but it's a little different concept. So slavery was about this idea of having people work for you, and there's absolutely abuses to it, of course. But sometimes in, in these households, you would have slaves that were like more like family members or, or more like part-time workers, and so some of them would be uh, more honorable than others. And so what a Roman um, um, man could do is he could find a person in his household, a slave, and he could say to them, I want to adopt you because I don't want the government to get my belongings, but I also want my name to continue. So what would happen is this slave would then go to become the son of the father. Now, why is this important? Because what would happen then is at that moment, that slave would then become the next in line to inherit, but also they would speak for the father in all matters of business and civil uh, duties. So, inheritance today is when someone dies, you get whatever they have. A little or a lot, whatever it would be. But you have to wait for their death for that to take place. In Roman culture, when you were adopted, you received your inheritance right then. And that you began to live a better life. You had, you had the resources. You had the, you had the honor of the family. So what Paul is saying to the Gentiles is, listen, you were a slave. Now, in this context, some people probably reading the letter would actually be slaves. But what Paul is saying is you are spiritual slaves. You are slaves to sin. Now, watch what he does next here. He uses another phrase in verse 6 and 7 to kind of unpack this. He says, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. See, he's taking this concept of Roman adoption and he's saying, listen, before you met God, before you met Jesus, you were a slave. Whether you're a slave to sin or a slave to the Old Testament law, you were a slave. But when you encountered God, when you encountered Jesus, you transformed from slavery into something more. Now, look at this here. The phrase Abba Father, right? We know we've talked a bit bit about that. But Abba Father simply means Daddy God, right? Abba Father. It is an ancient Aramaic term of uh, intimacy. It is, an, it is a term that a child would speak to their father. Now, obviously, this is Father's Day, and obviously, on Father's Day, um, people can have, unfortunately, um, not, on, not a healthy view of fatherhood, and that is what is uh, in their culture today, for sure. But what Paul is saying here is that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, we look up at God no longer with fear, no longer with distance, but we, we say this term of Abba Father, of intimate, uh, of, of Daddy God, of, 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 of trust and, and mutual love and respect and, 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 and devotion and, and all that fatherhood is meant to be. This is what Paul is saying. Then look at this here. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So when you became a Christ follower, you didn't have to wait till your death to receive the benefits. And you didn't have to wait till someone else died to receive the benefits. Instead, according to Roman context, you receive them right away. And the benefits are the spirit coming living inside of you. Now, this is how Paul starts off this section here because he wants to now unpack something, okay? Now, this, we're going to get to Paul's angry section, right? The next part here, Paul uses a couple of phrases I want to kind of point out to you. I fear for you, this is Paul talking to the church in Galatia, that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. 
He says in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You kind of hear Paul's frustration here a little bit, right? You kind of feel Paul's anger at what's going on here, right? Paul's saying, I have done all I can for you and have I just absolutely wasted my time. And if you have ever worked with uh, discipling somebody or mentoring somebody, um, even if it's in a workplace, if you try to train somebody in there, sometimes you feel like, I feel like I'm wasting my time with you. As a youth pastor, I felt that constantly in the sense of like, youth will make whatever decisions they'll make and they can be part of your youth group and try to, you know, uh, uh, become more like Christ, but, you know, things can happen. But not only that though, but as a pastor in a church, you can see people come in, you can see people be part of it, but then you can see them do really dumb things. And you're kind of like, oh, have I wasted all this time with you? Have I, have I, have you forgotten? Right? But now look what he says here. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So for the first time in this letter, we're going to get a glimpse of what's going on in this church in Galatia. So remember I said to you, there's a group of Jewish people who came to this Gentile church saying, listen, it's great that you love Jesus. We love Jesus too. But we want you to get circumcised. And we don't want you to eat bacon. And we want you to... And they gave all these rules. And all of a sudden, they say, huh, that's how I get God to love me more? That sounds like a good idea. So for the first time, we see that this is actually what's taking place here. Look what he says in verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And look at verse 10. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. What's Paul saying? For the first time, we see that this church in Galatia not only have these Judaizers amongst them, but they're actually going, it's not a bad idea. Pause for a second. We can look at this and going, these Galatians are kind of dumb, right? Like, why, why would you leave Jesus? Except for the fact that we do this all the time ourselves. How can I make God love me more? Maybe if I act like a good person. Maybe if I did this. Maybe if I did that. Maybe if I work in the soup kitchen. Maybe if I... We kind of negotiate with God, don't we sometimes? But hey, I, if I behave this way, if I'm a nice person, will God love me more? There is something so appealing about manipulating our relationship with God. And that, manip- that manipulation comes from our behavior. If I said to you, forget the faith component. If you did 10 push-ups every morning and you memorize this scripture, God would love you more. You're like, hmm, really? I could do 10 push-ups or 20 push-ups or this much or, or whatever and memorize this scripture, God love me more? Yes. Okay, that's kind of attractive because all of a sudden I can control my relationship now. I can control my, I can control how God sees me now, not based upon what Christ did. Remember what Paul starts off Galatians about the gospel? Now it's about my effort. And if I put more effort in, God will love me more. And all I really want is God to love me more because I'm kind of a bad person. I actually hide a lot of darkness inside of me. And so if I can find a way to manipulate God, that's what I'm going to do. And so for the first time we see in this part here that Paul is saying, listen, um, why are you leaving God? Why are you going back to these, and I love the phrase, weak and miserable forces, right? Do you think Passover, Hanukkah, Yom Kippur, or whatever season you think these things have value? Traditionally, yes, and you can, you can celebrate them, but it doesn't make God love you more. God loves you because of Jesus. 
and what he did upon the cross. And if you forget that, there is this idea within the New Testament about this concept of transformation. And we see it time and time again. And the phrases that are used are like the old self, the way you used to be. I read this article a few years back about um, how millennials are leaving the church, right? So churches today are uh, not our church, thankfully so, but for many churches, anybody below the age of 50? No. Uh, uh, 20, is, it's, it's difficult to find them because they're leaving the church. And so the church's response is, hey, you know what we can do? Lights and lasers and smoke machines and look at that guy's skinny jeans and he's got tattoos and we're kind of a cool church. We drink beer and look at our hair and we have some earrings. So we're cool. So millennials come back to church. The interesting thing about this article, the guy said in the article, and he was actually kind of drawing upon a whole bunch of data. He said this, this is not what draws millennials back to church. And this is also not why they're leaving church. He says the reason why millennials are leaving church is because they've discovered something about their parents. They're hypocrites. What, they, what he said, and I thought was so profound, he said, we have, as parents, have said, God is important, church is important, faith is important, but we have lived exactly the opposite of saying that. And what, one thing you have to understand about millennials and the younger generations, the thing they hate most, hypocrisy. That's what they hate the most. They hate the fakeness of someone saying one thing but acting another. That's why movements like Me Too and all that's taking place in our culture right now, with people, whether it's racism, whether it's um, uh, abusing those underneath you, whatever it would be, the response is quick and devastating. Just ask Roseanne, right? You do anything that shows people that you are fake or not following whatever it would be, society will cut you down. And these are millennials. They hate fakeness. And so if they hate fakeness so much, if we as Christ followers, if we as parents have have not lived up to what we have said, they're not leaving the church because of anything but the church. They're leaving the church because they don't believe it to be true because they're not seen in the lives of those around them. And that is devastating to think about because what we are basically saying is the exodus of younger people out of the church was because there was no transformation. We are still clinging to our old selves. I've said this before, and I'll I'll remind you again. And this is not a popular statement, and I understand that. But if your life looks exactly the same as a person who doesn't know Jesus, that's a problem. That's an absolute problem. Why? Because when you encounter Christ, when you encounter the gospel, something has to shift. Something has to give. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you act and behave like everybody else, It's a problem. Now, we're not here to say that you have to be perfect or have to act a certain way. We are saying what I think the Bible is saying, what we see the pattern saying, is there has to be transformation. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years. Are you moving towards Christ-likeness or are you stuck in this rut? Are you stuck in behavioral, um, Judaic kind of like, I'm going to behave like a good person? My heart's going to be far from Jesus. Are you being transformed? And that's the part that millennials are really looking for. And that's why they're going to other religions. That's why they're going to different faith contexts. Because all they're looking for is authenticity. Not perfection. Because one thing I like about millennials, one thing I love about uh, being a youth pastor the most, is they were brutally honest. Brutally honest. Just wear something a youth don't like to a youth group, and they'll tell you you look dumb. And they will tell you how uncool you are. I was never a cool youth pastor. I don't have a single tattoo. I don't, I'm not, I'm not cool. My wife will tell you that. My kids will tell you that. I'm not cool. 
But what my, my youth liked about me, if anything, is that it's whatever we talked about and whatever we said, it was as close as possible to what I thought the Bible was saying to them. And they just liked, they just liked the honesty. I could mess up. They could mess up. But it was the authenticity was what they were looking for. And so what Paul is saying here is something kind of interesting. And it's kind of a, something we have to remind ourselves in. Is that there has to be a former self. There has to be the old self. If there is no old self, there is no new self. And there, if there is no new self, there is no Jesus. We have to stop saying to people, Jesus is so important and living like we don't have time for him. We have to stop saying Jesus is so important and we don't look like we're transforming. We can't, we're acting viciously towards people. We're on social media. We're attacking people. Like, like how do we discredit Christ, bring, bring shame to the cross when we act and behave in this way in the culture? Like that's the part where people can't, that's the disconnect people can't quite get. And I agree with them completely. I, this is what Paul is saying. Listen, you used to be this way. Then you encountered Jesus and you started moving this way. Why are you going back? What's so great back there that you think is going to help you become more loved by God? And this is the part where Paul is trying to help them understand. Now look at verse 17. Those people, I love it. I, be, I think if Paul would have a more of a vicious way of saying that, right? But he says, those people. Those people are zealous to win you over, but, no, but, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Did you know, you're about to, that in the New Testament, in the letters, one of the greatest sins in the early church was division within the church. Just, just, do, a little, just do a little kind of a search on that. There were so many forces trying to pull people away from this body of Christ concept that the apostles and, and, and those in authority in the church would say time and time again, listen, it's not about perfection. It's not about getting everything right. But don't get pulled away back into your former lives. Don't get pulled away, away from the body of Christ. Because if you do, you will not thrive. You will not grow. You will not develop. And what's worse is you can hurt other people as well too. And so Paul is saying that right here. These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Now, Paul's going to wrap up this chapter. He's going to talk about a story in the Old Testament. The story of Sarai and Hagar. And he's going to use this as a metaphor to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and other by the free woman. Now, watch this, okay? His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son born of the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These two things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. Now, stop here for a second. Let me give you the context of what's happening here, right? Paul is talking about Abraham. He's been talking about him a couple of times already. And he says, listen, Abraham did something really stupid. He didn't believe what God told him. And instead, he decided that he was going to help God with his promises. So the Bible tells us there's two covenants in the Old Testament, two major covenants. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, look at the language of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Look what God says. 
I will make you uh, into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth, uh, you will be blessed, uh, will be blessed through you. The, the part with the Abrahamic covenant you have to understand is I will. God is saying to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. Well, the next covenant is something called the Mosaic Covenant. And this shows up a few hundred years later. And the Mosaic Covenant is mathematical. For those of you people who like numbers, I have no idea why. But for those of you people who like math, you're going to love this. Because this is an if-then statement. The Mosaic Covenant says this. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. If-then. Now, if you're a parent, you know the if-then statement. If you don't clean your room, I will change the Wi-Fi password, right? If you don't do this, then this will happen, right? If you obey or do what you're supposed to, then the reward will be great. If you do not, the punishment will be even greater, right? This is the Mosaic Covenant, right? It is a conditional covenant, right? Look at the Abrahamic Covenant. It is unconditional. God doesn't say to Abraham, if you're a good person or if you do everything right or all this stuff, then I will. God says, I will. Right? I will. And as a matter of fact, the Abrahamic covenant is misnamed because Abraham never participated in the covenant. He was an observer to it. God made the covenant with himself. We've talked about that. But in the Mosaic covenant, God sends Israel into the promised land, but he says this, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose life, choose death. Choose obey, obedience to me or choose disobedience to me. It's up to you. God takes our free will very seriously, right? So Paul is saying something very important here. He says, listen, there's two covenants. I like the Abrahamic one because it's all about what God does for me. I don't like the Mosaic one because it's all about what I have to do for God. Which one would you prefer? Now, watch. Let me unpack the covenant here for a little bit, right? So now look what he says here. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born of the power of the spirit. It is the same now. Go back with me in Genesis chapter 15 for a second. God shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, listen, I got a promise for you, right? And the promise is for children. Why is children so important? Remember what Abraham says? Remember what the Jewish culture says? There's no adoption. So if you don't have children, who gets your stuff? Well, another family member. Look at this. This is a conversation in Genesis chapter 15. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. And Abraham has been talking with somebody else, taking everything from him. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God's making a promise to Abraham, right? God's making a promise to Abraham. But now look at Abraham's and Sarai's response, right? When God shows up to Abraham, what does Abraham say to him, right? says, you have given me no children. God, apparently you can create the sun and the stars. Apparently you can create all of life, but you can't fix my plumbing, right? Or you can't fix her plumbing. I don't know whose plumbing it is, but apparently this is beyond you, right? You have, I'm, I'm trying to be delicate here as much as possible, right? You cannot do this, right? Now look at this here in Genesis chapter 16. This is the next chapter, right? Sarah's wife, Sarah's, Abraham's wife says to Abraham, you know what? It's been a while since God made that promise with kids, and nothing's happened. So, Abraham, I got a great idea. You should have sex with my slave. 
Abraham's like, okay. And uh, that's a whole different conversation. But the point is this. Sarai and Abram decided not to believe God. And they, they took action so that they could help God. As if God needs their help. As if, if, if God doesn't say something, it's not going to happen. Right? So now look at this. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. See the language there? The Lord has kept me from having children. Didn't God just say that you're going to have lots of kids? No, 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 no. Right? Now in Sarah's defense, we don't know exactly the time frame, but we suspect it's about 10, 15 years after the first promise. In 10, 15 years, even the most patient person kind of goes, okay, right? So Sarai says to Abraham, listen, sleep with my Egyptian slave, and that son shall be your heir. What are they doing here? Abraham, I'm going to give you a promise. And guess what, Abraham? You don't have to do anything for it. I've spoken it. It will happen. Or you can do this thing. By the way, it was sinful. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it wasn't sinful. Okay? Abram sleeping with, his, with his, uh, his, his wife's slave is sinful. That was their first sin. Well, actually, the first sin was not believing God. The second sin was actually in this act. And the third sin, this is what Paul says, is Ishmael would forever be a thorn in the side of the children of Israel from this day forward. And that's exactly what has happened. Because they decided that they need, God needed their help. What kind of God do we serve? That's what Paul's asking the people in Galatia. What kind of God do you think you serve? Do you think that God is so petty, so mean-spirited, so shallow that he needs your help? Do you think God can't love you because of all your past sins? And I say that right now, but the reality is we can feel that today, can't we? God, how can you love me? How can you forgive me time and time Time and time and time again. What is Galatians chapter 1? That's no gospel. Right? What's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's the gospel. Not Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you act really good, he'll love you. That's not the gospel. And this is what Paul is trying to help the church in Galatia understand. Now look how he wraps this up. Look at verse 31. Therefore, now whenever Paul used the word therefore, it is summarizing an argument, a, a conversation that he's had. And when he says therefore, he's summarizing. Like, think of it like an equal sign in a mathematical far, uh, formula. So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are not children of the slave woman. Whoa, whoa. We have freedom. And Galatians 5 is going to kind of go into that. Spoiler alert, right? But Paul's saying, love God. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But don't worry about your actions and your behaviors. God will work with you and transform you. Forget about circumcision and all the guys like, thank you, right? Forget about kosher and all, all the BLT lovers like, thank you, right? Forget all this stuff. Just love God. Pursue after him. Now watch. Paul starts off the chapter by talking about we are part of God's family. This is who we are. You know what church is? Church is a spiritual family. You know what families are? 
they're a mess. They are, they are all sorts of fun and, uh, what, what did one professor say? Families put the fun and dysfunctional, right? And, and, and that is absolutely true, right? Families are whatever they are, but they're still family. Well, Paul says that the family of Christ, the body of Christ, we are a spiritual family. And spiritual family, we fight. We don't get along all the time, but we're still family, united in Jesus. So act and behave that way, right? This is who we are. There are forces trying to separate us, internal and external. The external are people whispering in our ears and saying things they shouldn't be saying to pull us away from the body of Christ. But the internal is our own guilt and shame. It's our own guilt and shame going, I don't know if God loves me enough. I don't know if God can forgive me. You know, it's, I was thinking about it this week. The lie of the serpent. All those hundreds of thousands of years ago, whatever it would be. Did God really say? And that lie has stuck in our hearts ever since that day. Did God really say he would forgive you every time you asked? Even if you're asking about the same thing for the 500th time, did God really say that? Did God really say he loved you? Did God really say he, wants, he, has, he has a life for you and he wants to transform you? Did, did God really say that? And our problem is we go, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I doubt gets sown in our hearts and the enemy jumps on that. And Paul asks us, what kind of gospel is it you are actually following? And the third part is, we are children of the covenant. This is the ancient foundation. And what I love about this is the Judaizers, right? They're, they're relying upon the Mosaic covenant. Paul goes, there's another covenant that came before this one. And that's Abraham. That's why Jesus uses this phrase to talk about this one woman, daughter of Abraham. He's saying, you are a daughter. You are a son of a new covenant. The covenant of God's blessing upon you through Jesus through his forgiveness of your sins, your old life, all the behavioral modification, all the whatever you think you can do to make God love you, that's mosaic. Come back to the Abrahamic covenant where God loves you so much. He cares for you deeply. and He wants to transform you. And yes, you'll fail. And yes, you'll fall. Right? But the gospel is that every time we fail, every time we fall, Jesus is there to pick us up again. That's the gospel. And this is what the Galatian church is struggling with. This is what they are wrestling with. And this Paul, as their pastor, as the person who planted their church, is saying to them, stop, stop. You have what you need. You don't need this other stuff. You have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the Father's covenant, his promise to Abraham, which you are heirs of. For all people, Jews and Gentiles. Rest in that. Believe in that. Let that be your foundation. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. We do this every week. I'm not going to make you do anything. Just want you to think. Ponder. Reflect. In my heart, I just feel that there, there's some people here this morning Without realizing it, you've been living the the Mosaic Covenant. You've been trying to bargain with God. You've been trying to manipulate your relationship with God by your good works or your behavior. You need to ask for forgiveness. 
because that's not the relationship God wants to have with you. If guilt and shame is the driving force of your relationship with God, you are living under the wrong covenant. Some of you in this room ask the question, how can God forgive me? And my response to you is, have you met your God lately? Have you met Jesus? It's not to be little your sin. Because Jesus hung on the cross for that. That's how severe he thought your sin was. But it's also how important his relationship with you is. So if that's you this morning, I just really want you just to allow the Holy Spirit right now just to heal that which is broken, just to pluck that voice out of your head that is talking to you about the shame and the guilt and, 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 and your behavior and just replace it with the Holy Spirit, the engine to drive you for transformation. That's what God would have of us. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are children of the Most High God. We are adopted. We were once slaves to sin, but now, now, we are sons and daughters of God. And we are transformed. And we have to start living that way. Because this is how God has set up our life with him. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you walked amongst us. I thank you you taught us. But Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the cross. This violent act, this horrific act, it was for me. It was for us. Sin has consequences. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to demean that. But I also want to remind us that the cross is a response to that sin. The gospel the good news is that Christ died for us and that we come to him and we are changed and we are transformed. I pray, Holy Spirit, in this room, in every heart and mind, you would continue to transform us. God, please don't let shame and guilt be the only voices we hear. But let us look to the cross. Let us look to Abraham and Sarah and see this covenant, see this this relationship, and let us cling to that. God, I thank you for your love, your relentless, your reckless love. And I pray in Jesus' name that that love would transform us today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, and the rest of our lives. I ask, it, I ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.